Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, each week my colleagues Brian Ballow, Ed Ayers, Nathan Connolly, and I explore a different aspect of American history. Now, October 31st is lurching towards us like a zombie stalking the nighttime streets. So many are decorating their haunted houses and stocking up on candy in preparation for one of America's favorite holidays, Halloween. A testament to its enduring popularity, Halloween spending is expected to top $8.8 billion this year, according to a 2019 survey by the National Retail Federation. So today on the show, as ghosts and ghouls of all ages get ready to descend on neighborhoods across the country, we're digging into the archives and bringing you our spookiest segments. You'll find out how one man made a fortune off photographs that allegedly captured spirits from the other side. And you'll learn how Edgar Allan Poe's horror stories reflected 19th century fears of slave insurrection. But first, we're going to begin in the 19th century when the idea that the living could commune with the dead turned into a full-fledged American religion. It was known as spiritualism. And while there's been plenty of debate about what to make of it, most people agree on when and where it started. In 1848, in a tiny town in upstate New York. I'm going to hand things over now to Nate DeMeo to tell us the story of the Fox Sisters. People said the house was haunted. And that was even before the two girls started talking to the dead. Kate Fox was 11. Her sister Margaret was 14. When they moved into a little house in a nothing village, 40 miles east of Rochester, New York. A little house that all their neighbors knew as the one where the traveling salesman had been invited in years before and was never heard from again. Never heard from, that is, until one night in March of 1848 when their parents first heard the sounds. Some nights it would sound like knocking, other nights like furniture moving, and it always seemed to come from the girl's bedroom. But they'd open the door and their daughters would be fast asleep. They never suspected that their daughters could be tricking them. They were just young girls, but they were tricking them. What started with a little tap tapping in the wall and tiptoeing back into bed with giggles muffled by pillows got more sophisticated as the nights went on. And on the night of March 31st, the Fox sisters revealed the latest in their growing repertoire of ghost simulating techniques. The one that would place the two girls at the center of a cultural and religious revolution. They called their mother into the room. Margaret snapped her fingers once, and they heard a tap in response. She snapped twice and it tapped twice. The next night, all of their neighbors squeezed into the girls' candlelit room. They explained that one tap meant yes, two taps meant no, and then they started asking questions. 
and in the morning, the audience left convinced that they had spent the night in the presence of a dead man and two girls with incredible powers. Mr. and Mrs. Fox wanted to protect their daughters, and they sent them to live with their responsible older sister, Leah. But they soon found that the ghosts followed the girls, and Leah found an opportunity. She had booked her little sisters in a 400-seat theater in Rochester. By 1850, they were the toast of New York City. People would wait in line for hours to ask the sisters for words of their dead loved ones on the other side. William Cullen Bryant caught their act. James Fenimore Cooper. George Ripley, though we don't know whether he believed it or not. The newspaper man Horace Greeley introduced them to New York nightlife, and in the pages of his paper, introduced them to the world. Soon people were holding seances like we hold dinner parties. But even as spiritualism was sweeping the nation, it was leaving the sisters who started it behind. On October 21st, 1888, a 54-year-old Margaret Fox sat on the stage at the New York Academy of Music in front of 2,000 paying customers and her sister Kate and showed them all how she spoke to the dead. She told them about how 40 years before, back in that little house in the nothing town, after a few nights of knocking and tiptoeing back to bed, she and her little sister realized that they could both crack their toes and no one could see them doing it. And that when they did, people actually believed they were hearing from dead people. Because sounds are hard to place in space, and because you'll believe pretty much anything if you really want to believe it. She revealed all of that, but not everything. She didn't tell them about how she and her little sister started to unravel, not long after Horace Greeley introduced them to the world, and to worldly things like power and wealth and wine. She didn't tell them about how her sister began to believe that maybe there was something to it all, even as they both struggled under the growing weight of their shared secret. And she certainly didn't tell them about the night she tested her own belief, after Scurvy had taken the life of a polar explorer who had taken her heart, and how she broke down and tried to contact him, tried to do for real what she had spent the last nine years pretending to do. She didn't say how she called out to him, and how he didn't call back and how she sat in the dark, knowing that he never would. Kate and Margaret Fox weren't forgotten, but at the times of their deaths, they weren't remembered fondly. Each died poor, neither living to see 60. The people who still clung to spiritualism were glad to see them go. And people who never believed, they were too. Now, there is a postscript here that really can't be resisted, and you can do with it what you will. They tore that little house down in 1904. Inside one of the walls, near the girls' room, they found the skeleton of a man believed to be a traveling salesman who appeared to have been murdered a few years before the Fox family moved in. It's true. That was Nate DeMeo. You can listen to a longer version of the story, as well as many more of Nate's American history stories, at thememorypalace.us. Pessimist's Archive is a history show about why people resist new things. In each episode, they look at the moment that something new was introduced, something that today we think of as commonplace, like recorded music, 
umbrellas, bicycles, cars, chess, coffee, the elevator, and so on. And then they try to understand why it freaked everyone out. Here, host Jason Pfeiffer explained why the British resisted the umbrella in the 1600s, mocking anyone who used it. Or why many governments banned coffee, including the governor of Mecca and the King of England. Pessimists Archive helps illuminate why people resist innovation and what it takes to move them to embrace it. It's ultimately a show about progress and the long road to getting there. Check out Pessimists Archive wherever you enjoy your podcasts. One day in 1861, Amateur photographer William Mumler sat down to take a self-portrait in his Boston studio. Mumler later claimed that when he went to develop the image, he found quite the surprise. Because he discovered that though he had been alone in the room where the picture was taken, he was not alone in the photograph. Standing next to him uh, was a picture of a ghost. Brian spoke to Peter Manso last year. He says that Mumler had miraculously captured a hazy image of a young woman hovering above his shoulders. He first thought it was something of a joke, and he showed it to people saying, look at this strange mistake I have made. But then he became convinced that he had in fact captured the image of a lingering spirit in his photo studio. The photographer believed that the phantasmic figure was a cousin who had died 12 years earlier. The picture and the story it told soon found a ready audience. As we've just heard, spiritualism was sweeping the nation during the Civil War era, and spiritualists were hungry for evidence of their beliefs. They thought that this new technology of photography was leading to a new revelation, a new moment in the interaction between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Mumler and his wife Hannah saw a lucrative opportunity and began selling spirit photographs. Their most famous customer was Mary Todd Lincoln, who emerged from their studio with a portrait of her murdered husband protectively resting his hands on her shoulders. So you could visit the Mumler studio the same way you would visit any portrait studio at the time. You would sit in a well-appointed room, and when you had your photograph given to you, you might see, if you were lucky, the image of a deceased loved one lingering behind you, a ghost floating in the air very often. So the Mumlers became the toast of spiritualist Boston, and for a time, they were selling people the solace that they needed, this connection to loved ones who were gone. I don't want to badmouth another New England industry, but was this a little like whale watching? Where, <laughs> you know, you kind of pay your money, you go out to see the whales, and... You know, sometimes they show up and sometimes they don't. I mean, could people be asked to come back again and again and again in the hope that the spirit would show up? It was precisely like whale watching in the sense that Mumler would never guarantee the ghosts would appear in the photographs. He would say that he had no control over the spirit world. He did not know why some spirits chose to appear his camera before his camera and some did not. He could not determine in advance which spirits would arrive to be in your photograph. And so certainly people who were dissatisfied but still believed in the possibility mm -hmm. of spirit photography, they would come back. 
Uh, but very often, people did receive what they wanted to. Uh, they received images of their late spouses or very often of their children who had died too young. So Mumler, again, was, was filling this real need, and he was giving those who believed in him exactly what they paid for. Do you have any specific cases of believers, and can you give us a sense of what they thought they had found? The Mumler story unfolds during the Civil War, and many of the people uh, who visited Mumler were haunted uh, by their own particular feelings of personal loss, but often by their role that they played within the war. Mm -hmm. So in Boston, there was a man named Alvin Adams. He was the founder of a company called Adams Express, and he began as just a courier service, but he soon became the leading shipper of bodies uh, in both the North and the South, shipping the casualties of war. Oh, they, would, they would be shipped in special Adams Express caskets. And Adams felt the, the weight of all these young men yeah. whose deaths he was profiting from. And when he visited Mumler, he wanted to be relieved of that feeling of guilt. And he was given a spirit photograph showing a young man uh, who he believed to be one of these casualties. And in receiving this image, he did seem to receive some kind of relief. I gather that most of the people who went to the Mummers were satisfied customers, or at least believing customers. Initially, they were believers in spiritualism, but they were also skeptics who wanted to see if it was what people were claiming it would be. And soon the skeptics began to outcrowd the believers in the Mumler studio. So many people came hoping to be the ones to reveal the fraud uh, that Mumler felt endlessly investigated by, by these uh, photographers who thought that this was someone abusing their pure art. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also became popular among spiritualists. Uh, the spiritualists in Boston actually believed that spirit photography was possible, but something about the mumblers eventually just didn't smell right. And they decided that though spirit photography may be possible in the future, this fellow William, William Mumler was not in fact doing it. He and why was, did he they, was, what were they smelling? Well, as it happens in Boston, it began to become known that there, there were many ghosts depicted in William Mumler's photographs who were, in fact, alive and well and walking the streets of Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so when you began to recognize Rumors ghost, of their death were premature. <laughs> Exactly right. And you would find that you would find uh, the same faces of spirits on multiple people's spirit photographs, uh, people of no relation, and they would be looking at the same supposedly dead aunt. And when it began to be known that there were living people being used as ghosts in Mumler's images, that did put an end to one part of their career in Boston. Uh, they had fewer people coming to sit in their studio, but they at that point expanded such that they offered ghost photographs by mail. Uh, you could send them an image of yourself and a lost loved one, and they would use their mediumistic powers to recreate an image uh, of both the living and the dead and send it back to you. Did the Mumlers ever get in trouble for this? The Mumlers eventually needed to pick up stakes in Boston, and they needed to find a new field in which to sell their wares. So they moved down to New York City in uh, 1868, and Mumler set up shop again, uh, set up a shop on Broadway, where there were more than 200 
portrait photographers working at the time, so in some ways he fit right in, but he was the only one offering spirit photographs. So he immediately made a name for himself in New York City, uh, but that unfortunately also drew the attention of the law. Uh, So the mayor of the city at the time, A. Oakley Hall, made it a personal mission of his to crack down on small-time swindlers. And he saw Mumler as <laughs> He must as have one. been a busy man. <laughs> he was at the time. And he had a um, he had the the city marshal, his his personal investigator, a uh, man named Marshall Tooker. He put Tooker on the case investigating Mumler. Uh, the, the marshal of the city of New York goes to Mumler's studio in disguise using a fake name and demands to have spirit photographs taken. When he is given the photographs, he decides that now he, he has caught Mumler red-handed. He arrests Mumler and sends him to the wonderfully named city court of New York uh, called the Tombs at the time. Oh, yeah, I know and, the t- <laughs> and Mumler is um, made to face trial uh, in New York City, and it becomes the trial of the century at the time, because not only was one petty swindler being put on trial, but all of spiritualism, this idea that you could communicate with the dead, that you could see the dead to, to really settle this matter once and for all. And what was the evidence? Well, the evidence, as far as the prosecution was concerned, was that it was it was apparent that uh, that every photograph Mumler took was evidence against him because this simply was not possible. Their star witness ended up being P.T. Barnum. Uh, they Uh-oh. decided to bring in Barnum because they thought here is the world's preeminent expert on humbug, and, and <laughs> well, we'll, we'll bring we'll bring in Barnum to show uh, that Mumler is just one example of humbug. And in fact, Barnum had. Uh, in his American museum in New York, in New York City, he for several years had shown Mumler images in his gallery of humbug, the great humbugs of the world. He considered spirit <laughs> photography to be one of them. So Barnum uh, testified against uh, William Mumler to great fanfare. The newspapers, of course, loved it at the time because the the trial had already been a circus, and then here here comes the ringmaster to to make it official. But Mumler's defense attorneys response to this was, well, prove it. Prove that it is not possible for, t- for photography sure. to do this. We have seen throughout the 19th century, they would claim, uh, all the many marvels of technology. People scoffed at the telegraph. People scoffed at electricity. And now look at what these things are able to do. Who is to say, Mumler's attorneys argued, that photography, this marvel of technology, could not see the dead? could not have sight beyond human sight. And it ended up being a very persuasive argument. Well, how did things end? <laughs> the prosecution uh, mounted a, a strong, def- a strong uh, case against William Mumler, uh, but ultimately the judge had to admit that there was not the evidence to show how William Mumler had done this. The prosecution brought in a parade of expert photographers who said, if I was to create spirit photographs, this is the way I would do it. And they would give a number of theories, a number of techniques they would use. But then each one of them had to admit, I did not see Mumler do any of these things. And so we cannot know. We cannot know how these spirits appeared in his photographs. Uh, So Mumler was acquitted. Mumler was acquitted. And he uh, soon left New York and went back to Boston, where he continued to take spirit photographs uh, off and on for the rest of his life. Okay. So all our listeners now want to know, because we have you, Peter, not P.T. Barnum, how do you do it? It remains something of a mystery. Uh, There are certainly 
experts in photography, uh, experts in in, um, 19th century photographic techniques who can show how they would would have done it, just as those experts who testified at the trial can suggested how they would do it. But no one knows precisely how Mumler did it, in fact. He was able to, through some some kind of sleight of hand, he was able to perform some kind of double exposure on his glass plates uh, without being detected in in doing so. So he uh, certainly was... um, Perhaps not spiritually gifted, but technically adept with his with the photographic arts enough so that he was able to fool uh, the experts of the day and to create this ongoing mystery. What does this tell us about this particular moment in the history of photography? Well, when I began writing Mumler's story, it, it seemed just this quaint moment in, in 19th century history. But the more I began to investigate the story, uh, the more it seemed to have some resonance with the world we are in now. Um, this world in which radical changes in technology um, produce these challenges to human perception such that we are unable to know if we are looking at fact or fiction. Uh, what was happening at this moment of the intersection of the technology of photography and spiritualism seems to have some resonance to me with where we are now in this in our digital age, where we are encountering constantly uh, upgraded and uh, remade technologies. And we, too, are unable to look at an image and really know what we're looking at. And to me, this reminds me that it's not simply the case that those who believed in William Mumler were more gullible, or they were less savvy uh, uh, interrogators of images than we are. In fact, they were precisely the same moment we are in, where technology promises so much, and yet the questions that we have about human existence, about what comes next, they remain. And we inevitably use those new technologies to ask those questions and to find new answers. That was Brian in conversation with Peter Manso. He's the author of The Apparitionists, a tale of phantoms, fraud, photography, and the man who captured Lincoln's ghost. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment, including Audible Originals. Audible Originals are stories created exclusively for audio, including documentaries, exclusive audiobooks, and scripted shows that you can't hear anywhere else. Audible keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. You'll finish more stories when you listen with Audible and always be part of the conversation. I subscribe to Audible, and right now, I am listening to the Mueller Report on Audible. Audible members can easily exchange any title they don't love at any time. Members keep their library of listens forever, even if they cancel. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals, absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash backstory or text backstory 
to 500-500. That's audible.com slash backstory or text backstory to 500-500. I want to finish today's show with a segment that aired on our American Horror Story episode back in 2016. In it, Brian, Ed, and former co-host Peter Oniff discuss Edgar Allan Poe, America's original horror writer. Here they are in all their campy, gory glory. Now, Peter and Brian, there's just no way we can do a show on horror without talking about Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, he helped invent the modern horror story. Yeah, I wouldn't pit anybody against him, Ed. <laughs> because the pendulum swings back the other way? <laughs> exactly. Oh, those are terrible. Oh, God. Now, unfortunately, we're not the only ones creeped out by Poe's stories. His work seems to have universal appeal. Now, he was born in 1809 and died in mysterious circumstances in 1849. And during his short lifetime, he had legions of fans in both the United States and in Europe. And in the 20th century, his tales were translated into dozens of languages and inspired dozens of movies. I mean, there really hasn't been a time period um, since these works were published where people weren't reading them and intrigued by them. This is Paul Jones, professor of English at Ohio University. He says one explanation for Poe's enduring appeal is that his most popular horror tales, like The Raven, The Telltale Heart, and The Fall of the House of Usher, are not set in a specific time or place. Narrators and characters often go unnamed. But Jones says that much of Poe's work spoke to some very specific 19th century American anxieties. Though Poe was born in Boston, he was orphaned as a toddler and grew up in Richmond, Virginia. There, he became intimately familiar with one of the great fears of white Southerners, slave revolts. Poe was raised by the Allen family. They were wealthy merchants. That meant he had slaves in the household. Likely he was raised by a kind of a mammy figure. Likely he played with slave children as a child. Does Poe ever express his feelings about slavery? He's, he's very good about avoiding any expression of opinion <laughs> on, on topical issues um, in, in his public writing. Though we, we, there are definitely um, things he was writing for the Southern Literary Messenger, book reviews, for instance, where he very clearly um, seems to be embracing his region and his time's view of slavery as necessary, justified, mutually beneficial to both master and slave. Um, but he's in um, Virginia in the 1830s. The significant event in the 1830s is Nat Turner's Slave Rebellion, um, which happens in 1831. Sure. Southampton County, Virginia, sort of a middle-of-nowhere place that a man named Nat Turner rises up from within the slave community and persuades dozens of his fellow enslaved people uh, to lead a rebellion that would bring the end of slavery in some unspecified way. And along the way, they will kill their own masters and mistresses and the children of those masters and mistresses, beginning with Turner's own. It became famous throughout the whole country, and it would have been resonating in Richmond, certainly four years later when Edgar Allan Poe sets up shop there for the Southern Literary Messenger. Yes, as Poe starts his career writing horror, he's, he's in a culture where that is not forgotten. Right. Um, and that possibility that slaves could rise up and kill um, their masters is, 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 I think, a real anxiety for that moment in time. But he doesn't address it directly. Yes. So your, your, your argument is that he addresses it 
quite richly but obliquely. Can, can you? And this is where some of the horror in his stories come from. Can you make that connection for us? I guess the thing I would say about it is that in some ways it it was kind of reality contesting the public rhetoric about slavery. And so much, especially in the South, the writing about slavery was romanticized. Um, you have all these these depictions of kind of happy plantation life and loving servants and master relationships. And I think Poe would have just seen it as this is proof that our literature, the stories we tell ourselves don't actually fit what what's actually happening. And, and I think, yeah, I think he's so interested then in um, kind of taking that tension between those two rhetorics and, and, and exploiting it. So I'm intrigued. Tell me, what's the most famous story that feeds into the American tradition of horror that you think is a kind of sublimated wrestling with these anxieties of slavery? The moment in his work where I see kind of most clearly um, trying to evoke the um, specter of Nat Turner or the, the murderous slave is the one novel he wrote called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. And um, his hero finds himself on a ship um, and a mutiny occurs. And that mutiny is led by a, a, a black cook. Um, who we see um, slaughter 22 crew members um, with an axe. And definitely that vision of a black figure leading a murder spree would have evoked Nat Turner for the, the American reader and certainly the Virginia reader. Okay, Paul, that seems pretty overt. Are there better known stories where Poe plays upon this fear of slave revolts, but maybe a little bit less directly? So, yeah, I, I would say most famously, it, it, it would be the story of the murders in the Rue Morgue, a story that many people see as the first detective story. Right. And, and the detective in, the, in that story um, is trying to solve the, the brutal murder of a woman and, and her daughter mm-hmm. um, who've been found in a locked room. And, and, and I guess at this point, we should say this is a spoiler. <laughs> if you're planning on reading the story and have not, um, the murderer turns out to be an orangutan, an orangutan who has escaped from its master and, and taken a razor to these two women. Wow. And the, the, the scene where he escapes from the master, because the master eventually tells the detective what has happened, um, he has gotten out of the room he's locked in. And Wait, he begins. Why is okay. orangutan locked in a room in Paris? This is a good question. Uh, <laughs> so the owner is, is a sailor who has gotten the orangutans from wherever orangutans are. Right. The, the one thing to say is that, that in the 19th century, especially in, in the antebellum period, there is a whole body of race science that basically says the African race is one step away from primates. Thomas Jefferson says it in his notes on the state of Virginia. Yes. So this orangutan is, I think, importantly discussed repeatedly as the property of this white uh, owner, a possession. When his master tries to get him back into the closet he's kept in, he raises the whip at him and the ape jumps out a window and then is repeatedly called a fugitive, almost saying this is a runaway slave um, who is armed um, and then heads to this house where these women live and then enacts his violence on them. So you think that a lot of the horror then in this story and in others is not merely on the surface, but is a pressure that's sort of building within Americans who are worried about this kind of possibility of horror that they've built into the heart of their society. Yes, and it's in their own homes. Or for many of these readers, the source of terror is actually, it's, it's how they're living. And if it's not in their homes, it's in their neighborhoods, on their streets of their, of their cities. 
So do you think that the readers of Poe were aware of what he was doing? I'm not even sure he's aware, personally. <laughs> I think that's the, the real question about hmm. Poe's writing. What makes him such a talented writer of horror? Does he know what he's doing, or is he just <laughs> kind of really intuitive about what scares him, what scares his neighbors, what scares the people he knows? And the story, The Telltale Heart, it, it can be read about this anxiety. In that story, you have a narrator plotting the murder of an old man. And it's never very clear the relationship between these two figures, mm, but it's either maybe a lodger or a servant of the old man. And having the then the, the telltale heart narrator basically say, this man has no idea what I'm thinking about him, what I'm plotting. And he says, I was never kinder to the old man than during the week I was going to murder him. Um, yeah. How is that not scary? <laughs> uh, and, 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 right. and, and we do actually have Southerners writing things like that in diaries in the, in the antebellum South. Yeah. Uh, Mary Chestnut's diary, I think most famously, even though it's 10 or so years after Poe's death, I mean, she's basically saying that the slaves could kill us anytime they wanted. The slave that you told yourself um, loved you. Loved you. Yes, yeah, this whole rhetoric, right. this familial affection that may only be some, a story that you tell yourself that doesn't actually match reality. So it seems that Poe's genius in some ways is to sort of translate that deep anxiety of a particular time and place into something that people can feel more universally. Would you say that's kind of the secret of his longevity and also of his pan-American and trans-American appeal? Yeah, you do wonder how a work that I think really is aimed at its time has has managed to constantly be thrilling, uh, enjoyable, um, scary to readers in, in very different places. Um, one thing that we would have to say is that while we today aren't afraid that our human property is going to <laughs> rise up against us, people are always afraid of very similar things, <laughs> uh-huh. like other people. And, <laughs> and I think that's the one thing just to note is that there's hardly any supernatural things really in Poe's work. I mean, it's almost always about real people and what they're capable of doing. That was Ed with Paul Jones. He's a professor at Ohio University and the author of Unwelcome Voices, Subversive Fiction in the Antebellum South. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for joining me as we delve into the Backstory Archive. There are hundreds of other shows available at our website, backstoryradio.org. You can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. Send us an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the Johns Hopkins University, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. 
Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>